A gospel lesson is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. Listen for the word of God. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If one pays any attention at all to the news and the events of our day, it can be a challenge to hold on to hope, to see a way forward that leads in a positive direction, to discern where God is at work, to find evidence that love is indeed stronger than death or fear, truth more powerful than lies, and compassion stronger than apathy or hate. We are on the verge of an impeachment trial that, among other things, continues to reveal how deeply divided we are. Our government is in such disarray that I find myself amazed that things keep running at all. The fires in Australia are so massive that scientists say their smoke has traveled all the way around the world and back to where it started. Anti-Semitism, racism, Xenophobia and nationalism are all on the rise, not just in this country, but in many countries. More troops have been deployed to the Middle East. And closer to home, there are more homeless people in the city than ever before. As I go on my nightly walks with the dog around the neighborhood, I am saddened and alarmed by just how many people are asleep on the sidewalk 
and how many shop entrances on Madison Avenue are converted into cardboard bedrooms at night. As super-tall buildings rise across Midtown, the city's lack of affordable housing grows along with them. Friends struggle to find adequate employment in spite of the official job numbers. Some of us have family members facing recent cancer diagnoses. Many are wrestling with how to care for and support aging and increasingly dependent loved ones in a society that values youth and puts too few resources into caring for those who have grown old. Psychologists tell us that the numbers of people coming to see them who are struggling with anxiety and stress have spiked dramatically. I feel sure that all of us are touched in some way by anxiety, fear, and grief. The Psalms of Lament, where God's people cry out, How long, O Lord? Why have you forgotten us? are songs that many of us can appreciate and make our own. And though it is not easy to dwell on our anxieties and fears, though you may be wondering why in the world I am starting this sermon in such a depressing way, there is a place for lament. In fact, the biblical scholar, professor, and writer Walter Brueggemann says in his classic book, The Prophetic Imagination, that grieving is the first critical step towards hope. Unless you break through the numbness of simply accepting things as they are and see that things are indeed not okay, you can't begin to imagine an alternative. In order to envision a hopeful, life-giving path, you first have to see, express, and grieve all that is not right, everything that is working against life. On this weekend, when we celebrate and remember the life and prophetic ministry of Martin Luther King, Jr., one of the ways in which we can honor his work is to recognize that it is not over. We haven't yet achieved the world he dreamed of, where all people are treated equally and places of injustice have been transformed into his envisioned oases of freedom and justice. As he wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail, which we discussed in the adult education class this morning, human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of those willing to be co-workers with God. Sometimes we are lulled into thinking that progress does indeed roll in inevitably, and recognizing that it doesn't, that it hasn't, that there is still a long way to go, is a critical step. We have to have our eyes opened to all that is not right before we have any hope of living into a different world. So yes, I have begun this sermon by reminding us that there is much over which to lament. There are many ways in which we are living in a wilderness time. But it is in wilderness times that we can hear God speak more clearly that we can envision something new, 
that the prophets of hope can break through to us. Isaiah, Psalm 40, which we sang, and even today's gospel passage all point to hope and restoration, to a new thing that God is bringing about in the midst of what feels hopeless. The psalmist says, The Lord heard my cry and drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Whatever wilderness the psalmist has been through, God heard them and restored them. In the Gospel lesson, John the Baptist quotes Isaiah, saying he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. God's people of John's day were in the wilderness of the Roman occupation, living under an oppressive system. And John points them to Jesus, saying, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John testifies and directs them to the one who brings salvation, new life, and a different way of living in the world. Today's passage from Isaiah comes from the portion of the book known as Second Isaiah, which begins with chapter 40. This is a completely different prophet from Isaiah, son of Amos, of the first part of Isaiah. A century or two has passed since Isaiah, son of Amos, prophesied. This prophet of Second Isaiah, of whom we have no personal information, not even a name, is with the people of Jerusalem that were taken into Babylon. He is the prophet of hope in the wilderness of exile. Jerusalem had been overthrown, the temple destroyed, and the people felt completely cut off. Psalm 137 speaks of the despair of this time. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for a song, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The people are in such depths of despair that they cannot even sing. Brueggemann says, Second Isaiah makes it possible to sing. And when a people can boldly sing, even in the worst of situations, there is hope. Think of the rich tradition of African-American spirituals. In the midst of the cruelty and oppression of slavery, the people developed a rich treasury of song. They had the ability to imagine, to hope and trust that slavery would not always be their reality. The civil rights leader and theologian Ruby Sales, in her interview with Krista Tippett from On Being that I listened to this morning, spoke of her experience growing up in black folk religion, saying, by the time I was seven, I could sing 50 songs without missing a line. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches sang, The power of his language was the power of poetry and song that inspired people to believe in and work for a new reality. 
The prophet of Second Isaiah offers people a new song, and that new song inaugurates a new reality, as Brueggemann writes. He says Second Isaiah gives his people a remarkable gift. He gives them back their faith by means of re-articulating the old story. He gives them the capacity to confront despair rather than be surrounded by it. It is a new song that reminds them of their ancient history, that they are a covenant people. And just as God heard the cries of ancient Israel in Egypt and overcame Pharaoh and brought them out of slavery, so God hears their cries now and will create a new thing and bring them home through the wilderness. In our passage today, Second Isaiah speaks not just to the nation of Israel in exile, but to the coastlands, the peoples from far away. He is audacious enough to proclaim that this new song is not just for Israel, but for all nations. We learn a lot about what it means to be a prophet and a prophetic people from this passage. Isaiah says that he was called by God from before he was born. God made his mouth like a sharp sword, made him like a polished arrow, and told him he was the Lord's servant in whom God would be glorified. The second Isaiah is a prophet of hope. When you are proclaiming hope to people who are oppressed, who have been captured and taken into exile, the flip side of that is a message of challenge and change to those who are in power. Isaiah's words are a sharp sword and a polished arrow, hope for those who despair, but judgment for those who are the source of that despair. And then in verse 4, we see that this prophet is human, just like everyone else, wondering if all his work means anything. The prophet laments, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. The prophet doesn't see immediate results and momentarily gives in to despair. But as quickly as he sank into despair, he rises out of it, remembering that he is doing God's work. Even if he doesn't see it come to fruition, his cause is with God and his reward is with God. This is such an important message for us. As Christ's body on earth, the church too has a prophetic ministry. It's part of who we are. Just as Isaiah was born to be a prophet, it was his identity, the church is also called to be prophetic. It is part of our identity. We may never see the fulfillment of God's reign on earth in our lifetime. I don't imagine we will see the end of racism, injustice, poverty, discrimination, and oppression. But we are still called to be true to God's righteousness, to Jesus' call to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to be his agents of healing and reconciliation. 
Remember the prescient ending of what would be Martin Luther King Jr.'s last speech, the day before he was assassinated. Well, I don't know what will happen now, but it doesn't matter, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. King knew his life was at risk, and he seemed to know that he didn't have long. He knew he wouldn't see the day his dream would be realized, but he knew that it was ultimately God's dream, and one day it would be reality. Isaiah did not see the fulfillment of God's promises. Martin Luther King didn't, and we are unlikely to either at least in this lifetime. But we are still called to trust in those promises, to proclaim them and live into them. We are called to a prophetic ministry simply because we are the church. We are called to proclaim God's vision for this world and to live as members of God's kingdom. Are we being true to that ministry? At times, it means speaking words that are like a sharp sword or a polished arrow. It means examining our own lives and lifestyles and the ways they may contribute to keeping others from living a full, free life. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail was written to the white church, to white church leaders who questioned the nonviolent direct action of the civil rights movement. In this letter, he expresses his disappointment with the white church and its leadership. When the movement first started, he thought the white religious leaders of the South would be strong allies. But for the most part, that was not the case. He writes, In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with and have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. He goes on, The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch-supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. If you have not read it or have not read it recently, I encourage you to mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day by reading this letter. 
Its message to the church is as timely now as it was nearly 60 years ago. We are called to a prophetic ministry that speaks of hope to those who despair, that sings a new song, that lives into God's vision of a world at peace, a world that chooses to follow the Lamb of God over the worldly ways of wealth and power. As King writes, I hope the Church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Let us pray. Now to the one who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.